I was actually really surprised when Tom picked the book of Mark. You know, we studied the book of Mark for two years because one of the characteristics of that book is, you know, the word immediately happens so many times. Immediately, like he gets straight to it, which is not like Tom at all. But he did a great job. Anyway, bless you, Tom. Um, You've already preached half my message and you've already asked everyone to turn to the book of Ephesians. So uh, if you're there, (laughs) we're going to read from the first 14 verses, which uh, we began to study last week. And this particular message in Ephesians has been described as the Apostle Paul's magnum opus, his great masterpiece about the involvement of each member of the Trinity in the salvation of sinners. So let's just refresh our memories by turning to Ephesians 1 and reading verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, by which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he may gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory." In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Last time we began our study by looking at what we can describe as the pyramid of grace. So if we look at uh, this pyramid, we start at the top, and every downward step we can observe an ever-widening collection of spiritual treasures. So at the top we have blessing. What type of blessing? Spiritual blessing. Which spiritual blessing? Every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing where? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And more precisely, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul is teaching about the wealth of spiritual blessings that belong to every person who is in Christ. That that phrase, in Christ, in him, occurs seven times in the 14 verses we've just read. And understanding why we are in Christ and who we are in Christ is of primary importance because if we don't understand these things, we will always struggle in our Christian walk. 
We spoke last time about the tragic situation where many professing Christians have almost no understanding of why they are in Christ and who they are in Christ. They're continually plagued by doubts, always looking for some sort of external proof of their salvation, and at the same time, almost totally ignorant of the priceless spiritual blessings they have in Jesus Christ. And he informs us, Paul, that each person of the Godhead is involved. We looked up last time at the spiritual blessings of God the Father in verses 1 to 6. We saw that the only reason that you are a Christian today is because the Father chose you. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He knew everything about you, even before you were formed in your mother's womb. He decreed everything that would happen in your life. He determined that he would love you and keep you forever as his very own child. And there is no power in the universe that can now snatch you out of his hand. We also saw that the Father predestined you. Your destiny is, to, is predestined. Your destiny is to live with Christ forever. But that's not the only purpose for which God has predestined you. Ephesians 2.20 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are here to do good works which Christ already prepared for you when he chose you. Not to be saved by them, but so that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Our good works are for God's glory alone to show off his great workmanship through us. Also, the Father adopted you. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, has planted within you the instinct to call God Father. Romans 8, 15 to 16. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So understanding that the Father has chosen to adopt you means that you never need to feel on the outer with God. You can safely bring every, every feeling, every thought, wish, plan, doubt, everything to him because he is intimately interested in you as his beloved child. And you can even bring your sins to him because if we confess our sins, it says in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You never need to run from him. You can bring every aspect of your life before your heavenly father because he cares for you. And lastly, the father has accepted you. You are now permanently accepted in Christ. You will, he will never find you unacceptable any more than he would find Jesus Christ himself unacceptable. This is your eternal position in Christ and it will never, ever change. When Jesus rose from the dead... It was confirmation that the Father had accepted his sacrificial death as full and final payment for the sins of his people. So if you have repented of your sins and if you believe in Christ, you are now accepted forever by the Father. And because he accepts you in Christ, he will never disown you. So divine election, predestination, adoption and acceptance are the glorious spiritual blessings from our God the Father. Let's now look at the spiritual blessings this passage talks about that are from God the Son, and then we'll look at the spiritual blessings of the Holy Spirit. 
In verses 7 to 8, it says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Redemption means to be set free by the paying of a price. And it is estimated that in the Roman Empire that something like up to one-third of the population were slaves. And buying and selling of slaves was just a common practice. Once bought, a slave was usually a slave for life because it was highly unlikely he could ever get together the amount of money that he would need to buy his freedom. But of course, somebody else could purchase him. Somebody else could pay the price for him and then set him free. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. He purchased us for a price. And the price that he paid was infinitely more valuable than silver or gold, which can lose their value. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God paid for our, for our redemption by his own precious blood. The Apostle Paul reminds us, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless, aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. So Jesus redeemed us with his own blood from slavery to sin. And what a terrible, miserable slavery that is. Not only does it bring misery and pain in this life, but, but and contain, you know, culminating in, in physical death, but, but it also gets immeasurably worse. Physical death becomes a gateway for spiritual death, eternal suffering, everlasting condemnation and unending destruction in hell. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to yourself to holiness at the end and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, 22 to 23. Let us never forget when Jesus redeemed us with his own blood, he rescued us from a fate so horrific and so terrible that he himself said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 tells us, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word for forgiveness here means dismissal or to send away. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, he exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And when Jesus redeemed us with his blood, our sins were not merely covered for a time, they were permanently sent away. We, we heard in the call to worship this morning from Psalm 102, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's infinite. They, the two can never meet. And so as far as God's judgment is concerned, the redeemed believer and his sins will never meet again. God has removed our sins out of his sight because Jesus paid for them in full when he purchased our pardon with his own precious blood. 
God's gift of grace ensures that no written accusation of the law can ever stand against us. Sin had enslaved and impoverished us, but now, according to our text, we can stand, sorry, we can bask in the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. Note here also that our redemption through the Son, as well as securing forgiveness of sins, brings with it a definitely bestowed, a divinely bestowed wisdom and spiritual judiciousness. This comes to us through no less than the mind of Christ himself. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, and yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But... And this is just astonishing. It says, we have the mind of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom of God. Now, you may never have achieved any great um, academic standards in school and you may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, so to speak. And, uh, but, you know... When, when, and I was just going to say, um, before I was a Christian, I, I used to think I wasn't all that clever. And that was true. You know, my, my school marks were not really all that good. Uh, I didn't like getting into conversation with smart people because I just didn't get what they were talking about most of the time. And sometimes I'd notice kind people would sort of, you know, dumb things down for me so that I did get it. And I'm looking at some of you, you're smiling because you still do that for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, I'm living proof that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. But the longer I'm a Christian, the more I understand and totally appreciate the wisdom, foresight, prudence, and sound thinking that I have been given in Christ with all other believers. This is a most wonderful spiritual blessing in Christ that we can over, often overlook. There is no need for us to ever be intimidated by people with vast amounts of natural knowledge because in Christ we've been given the wisdom of God which far surpasses any earthly knowledge. Now we move on to verses 9 and 10. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both in heaven, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Notice how these words in Christ, in him, they just keep popping up all the time. When the Bible speaks here about God's mysterious will regarding Christ, It is talking about a sacred secret once hidden but now revealed to God's people. God's purpose to bring everything in heaven and earth together in Christ um, was not fully understood, not even in Paul's day when he wrote this. But now God has made his plan known to us. Uh, we We are his inner circle, if you like. We are now in the know about how God one day will gather all things and unite everything in Christ. 
The world is anything but united, and I'm sure you've, you've noticed that. Ever since sin entered the world, it has become increasingly divided. First, Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve, and they became separated from God. And then man became separated from man when Cain killed his brother Abel. Then mankind tried to cobble together an ungodly unity at the Tower of Babel, but God destroyed their plans and scattered them throughout the world. And over time, this world has become more and more buried in the ignorance of God because of sin. Because of sin, everything is being torn apart. But in Christ, God will gather everything together at the culmination of the ages. In in eternity future, a new heaven and a new earth will be created and a new universe where everything will be totally unified in Christ so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10 to 11. Now, the world is ignorant of all of this. It is not privy to this mystery, but for us, it is a spiritual blessing that we will one day fully enter into because we are in Christ. Then in verses 11 and 12, we read that in Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, of him, sorry, who works all things to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, while most modern translations read as if we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, some older versions read that is, that is as if we are inheritance for Christ. And I think regardless of how it's meant to be translated here, both statements are actually true. Firstly, there is no doubt that we have obtained a wonderful inheritance in Christ. 1 Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be received in the last time. We who are kept by the power of God through faith live in great expectation of of a priceless inheritance, kept in heaven, pure and undefiled, and beyond the reach of change and decay. Every earthly inheritance can be quite uncertain. Sometimes people who expected to receive an inheritance had a falling out with their parents, and then they find they've been written out of their will. Sometimes people who expected a large inheritance find out the estate was left to them with a large deal of debt and inherit far less than what they expected. And sometimes wills are successfully contested by people who were not in the will. And sometimes inheritances drop sharply in value because of market conditions. But in Christ, we obtain an inheritance that is totally beyond the reach of decay and change. There will be no loopholes. Nothing can be exploited to deprive us of it. Our inheritance is safely deposited in heaven for us to enjoy. Our title to this inheritance is written in Christ's own blood, ensuring that we are forever beneficiaries of the unsearchable riches in Christ through the gospel. So 
Christ is God's gift to us. But we, the church, are also God's gift to his son. We are joint heirs with Christ. The church is his body, his temple, his bride. Christ's inheritance is wrapped up in his church. His inheritance would not exist without the church. Ephesians 1, 23 says, And he, that is God, put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, the Greek word here for fullness, pleroma, can be used to describe a cargo ship, but not just the ship itself, but the cargo ship complete with the crew, the full crew and the full contents. And as amazing as it seems, Christ has in his body, the church, inherited a fullness that is in that particular sense was previously missing. And I say in that particular sense because the Bible teaches us that God is self-existent. He has no needs and therefore he depends on no one. But there is a wise and false, sorry, uh, uh, not a wise, a very unwise, false and widespread teaching that God cooperates with human beings and each party sort of, you know, supplies what the other party is lacking. For example, people imagine that God needs love, so he created men and women to, to love him. Or that he needs glory, so he had created people to worship him. Or that God needs men and women to carry out the work of salvation and to be witnesses and defenders of the faith. He doesn't. He can use stones to raise up children of Abraham, Luke 3.8. God does nothing on the basis of personal need. So when we say that Christ's body, the church, is the fullness of Christ. It is not because he was lacking something that that the church supplied. No, it's because God, according to the good pleasure of his will, predestined the church to be the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians 1, 17 to 18, Paul prays that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that, among other things, you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's an astonishing truth that Christ should look at his saints as part of his immeasurable wealth. Men use earthly riches to bring glory to themselves, but Christ gets glory from his saints because of what he has invested in us. And I'm sure you've heard the story of the Moravian missionaries. I I, I think Pastor Tom um, told us about it just not that long ago. But it's so good, you know, I just I never get hear, tired of hearing this, this story. And uh, in 1732, Johann, Johann Leonard Dober and David Nitschmann, two young Moravian brethren from Hernhardt in Germany, were called to minister to African slaves on, on the islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix in, West, in, in the West Indies. And these two young lads heard that there was a British landowner there who had 3,000 slaves. And this atheist British landowner had proclaimed that no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. And seemingly 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa had been brought to an island in the Atlantic and they would live and die there without ever hearing the message of Christ. So Dober and Nitschmann decided if they could work out a way to sell themselves to the British landowner as slaves, then they could actually go there. 
And if they could do that, they could take the gospel to the African slaves, even if it meant they would never return again to their families. So as they prepared to leave, the Moravian community from Hernhart came to the docks to see them off. And there was much emotion and weeping from family members and, and questions in their minds. Was their extraordinary sacrifice necessary? Uh, was it prudent? And, you know, as the ship's ropes were cast off and curled up on the pier, and as the ship slipped away on the tide and the, the gap widened, the young men lifted their arms, raised their hands, and shouted across the spreading gap, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before him would include inheriting a vast number of brothers and sisters to present faultless before the presence of the Father's glory with exceeding joy. The Lamb of God will inherit an immeasurable reward for his suffering. And we, as we have already read, the supreme purpose of everything we have discussed so far is to the praise of God's own glory. God is glorified through the grace he shows in redeeming hopeless and helpless sinners through Christ. In all future ages, he will be able to point to us as examples of the incredible grace and kindness that he's shown towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So what we so far, we've covered spiritual blessings from God the Father and from God the Son. And now let's look at our spiritual blessings from God the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14 read, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom... Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This text tells us that upon hearing the gospel and believing in Christ, believers are sealed or identified with the Holy Spirit of promise. The seal of the Spirit is God's guarantee that he has purchased us to be his own people. And that he will give us the inheritance that he has promised. The Greek word for seal, spargizo, which means security, distinction and authentication. And Paul uses a, a spiritual word picture here. Using the ancient practice of sealing one's property or official correspondence. Sealing was done by placing a unique imprint of a signet ring from a king or some dignitary uh, on a seal of hot wax to signify the object was unmistakably identified with its originator. Every true believer is unmistakably identified as belonging to God. And the seal of the Holy Spirit is the, is the guarantee that he will be fully and finally saved. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The immediate purpose of being sealed by the Holy Spirit is to identify those who will one day receive the full and final benefit of salvation in the resurrection. Romans 8.23 in the NLT reads, and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released 
from sin and suffering, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Being sealed or identified by the Holy Spirit is something believers are never uh, instructed to, to seek or to work for. The Holy Spirit is given by the grace of God to every person belonging to him. The possession of God's own spirit gives every believer the impeccable assurance and absolute certainty of their full and final redemption. Now, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, I thought I, thought I was redeemed already. And yes, that's true. But when Paul speaks of the redemption of the purchased possession, he is referring to the final phase of that redemption that occurs at Christ's return. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Bible teaches that our redemption has three phases, past, present, and future. We saw previously that we have been redeemed. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But we also are being redeemed currently. Titus 2.14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he may redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. As we wait for Jesus to return, we are reminded that Jesus came the first time not only to redeem us from the guilt and penalty of sin, but to redeem us from every lawless deed. There would certainly be something amiss if the penalty of sin in our lives was cancelled, but the power of sin was left unconquered to rule over us. We discussed previously that one of the purposes for which God has predestined us is that we should walk in good works so that men may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. This is the current phase of our redemption, which we also call sanctification. And it will continue until the final future phase when Christ returns and we become like him. Then our redemption will be full and final. We will experience the ultimate conformity to the likeness of Christ. It's impossible for us to imagine this, what this glorious conformity will be like. But it will be absolutely stunning, I'm sure. We will be as glorified as human beings can be without actually becoming deity. The Holy Spirit's seal is the current guarantee of our complete and final redemption in the future. This is why Paul could speak of future glorification as a current reality. Listen to Romans 8, 28 to, to, sorry, 8, 29 to 30. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified already. Our God calls the things that are, calls the things which do not exist as though they did. Romans 4:17. The Holy Spirit of promise is the guarantee of our future 
inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the glory of his grace. As we draw to a finish, we've looked at the exceedingly precious spiritual blessings in the heavenly places from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God chose you before the foundation of the world because he wanted to save you and accept you into his own family. He also predestined you to walk in good works, which will glorify him before men. God the Son has purchased your freedom by his blood and has set you free from the dominion of sin, death and hell. So these things no longer have any legal claim on you. And God the Holy Spirit has graciously given, was graciously given to seal and identify you as being forever in the beloved and the guaranteed recipient of God's grace and future glory. God will never lose you. He will never misplace you. He will never forget about you. You are his chief concern. He will love you to the end in this life and he will love you forever in the next. These are the great and certain spiritual blessings that God has bestowed on all who have put their faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross on their behalf. But what about you? Have you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross? The Bible clearly teaches there is one and only one path to salvation, the path of perfect righteousness. But never ever since, the, since Adam committed the original sin in the Garden of Eden has any human being achieved the perfect righteousness of Christ that God requires. In God's eyes, we are all transgressors of his righteous commands and deserving of eternal condemnation. So God, in his infinite mercy, sent his son into the world not to condemn guilty sinners, but that so that he may save them through him. John 3, 18 to 19 says, He who believes in him, in Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God declares here there are only two types of people and only two eternal destinies. There are those who will believe in Christ and therefore they will not be condemned. And there are those who will not believe in Christ who are condemned already. If you accept God's offer of mercy by repenting from your sin and believing in Christ, you will be saved. The Bible gives you a written guarantee of that. God will not condemn you to hell. He has given written assurance of it. But if you stay as you are, you are already condemned. By doing nothing, you are confirming you love darkness rather than light and that you love evil more than you love good. Why else? Would you reject God's offer of mercy? Jesus paid the sin debt on your behalf to reconcile you to God, but you would rather remain in your sins. What a terrible choice you are making. We all make bad choices in life, but we usually recover from those sort of choices. But if you choose to reject God's offer of peace in Christ, there can never be any recovery for you. You will remain condemned in your sins and eternally damned to hell. I know that they're strong words. They're strong words for a reason. But even 
Even as we speak, God is giving you a, chance, a choice. God in his mercy has allowed you to breathe for long enough to hear this message. Just think about that for a moment. He could snuff you out in an instance and be perfectly justified in removing your last chance to repent. But why should you be eternally condemned when God has made a way for you to inherit eternal life through Christ? Choose today to repent, to believe in the gospel, and you will be saved. And it will be the best possible decision any human being can ever make. Please don't put it off. Don't put it off. For another day, it may never come. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 3 says, We beg you not to accept this marvellous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, just at the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. So please, come and make your peace with God. Do it today. I'm going to be waiting at the front there when the church service finishes. Come and talk to me if this is what you want to do. I encourage you, don't leave. Come and talk to me and I'll tell you some more and I'll be really glad to do so. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so incredibly good. Lord, to look at rebellious sinners who shake their fists at you, who defy you, who ignore you, who enjoy the, the common blessings of seeing the sun every, rise every day, of seeing food on their table every day, Lord, of enjoying all the things that they enjoy and yet pretend they didn't come from you and just ignore you. So, Father, we, we know that you have revealed yourself through nature, you have revealed yourself through the things that you have made. But, Lord, even, even as I spoke today, you are revealing yourself as the saviour of the world, the saviour of people from their sins, the saviour of people from the condemnation of hell and destruction. And, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would quicken this message to people's hearts. You must repent. You must repent. Lord, we thank you that you have removed every barrier between us and yourself through the cross of Christ. And, Lord, and I pray that even this day, Lord, you will bring to yourself, call out a people to yourself, from the entire world, Lord, from this place and everywhere where the gospel is being preached. In Jesus' name, amen.